Ruth, chapter 1, verse 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down... Observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are my redeemer. You are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us around your word this morning. We are so grateful of the opportunity. We pray that through it, you would show us Christ. And that our hearts would be set alight, so we would love and worship him more. Amen. Please do grab a seat. And it would be a great help if you could grab a Bible too and flick back to Ruth chapter 3, which we had read for us earlier. Um, And uh, just so you don't miss it as you flick through, it's on page 223. And as you do that, let me talk to you about eagles, which might not have been what you were expecting this morning. Uh, But... I've been um, doing a bit of reading and watching some YouTube videos about eagles, and I've just come to the conclusion that they're the most fantastic creatures. Like, did you know that they can fly up to 10,000 feet in the sky, and they can reach speeds of up to 100 miles an hour as they dive? And as they dive, they can keep their eagle eyes fixed on a rabbit running two miles away, even without my glasses. 
It's amazing. And if some of the videos that I saw are to be believed, then they can carry sheep and mountain goats, at least for limited distances. And most unbelievably of all, they can even fly through the front window of jet airplanes. But do not worry, I am not going to show you a photo on the screen of that. It was pretty gruesome. And don't worry also about just where I'm going with this. This is actually going somewhere. Bear with me. Because one of the most striking features I found about eagles is that, uh, is that they have the most enormous wingspans of up to eight feet wide. So here's what I want you to do this morning. Just imagine you're a little eaglet chick. Where is the safest place for you to be? Well, of course, sheltering under the wings of the mighty eagle. There are few places safer in the world to take refuge than to be enfolded in the massive wings of that fiercely protective, resourceful, sharp-sighted beast. Now, I mention all of this because we've been working our way through this wonderful little book of Ruth this month, as Jonathan alluded to earlier. And the central image in the book of Ruth is of people taking refuge under the immeasurable protection of God's wings. So chapter one, here's your little recap if you're new here this morning or you've been away on holiday this month. Naomi and her husband Elimelech leave the shelter of God's wings in Israel and they run off to Moab as far away from God as you could possibly get. And it all unravels as Elimelech and his two sons die. So now we've got Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, one of whom stays in Moab, the other of whom is Ruth. And she comes back to Israel with Naomi. They're both widows. And in those days, there was no social security. And so it appears to us as if there's also no hope. But then chapter 2, Ruth encounters Boaz. And he looks out for her and protects her and provides for her. And as Ruth asks him, why? Why have you showed me this favor? Why have you noticed me? Boaz says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Folks, all of us long to be covered, don't we? To be uncovered in any way is a really scary thing. And we do anything possible to avoid that. But Boaz offers Ruth, God's covering, his protection, because she has come to seek it. And so this little book of the Bible asks us, are you taking shelter under the protection of God's wings? Is that your place of safety and security? Are his wings the covering for your shame, for your insecurities and uncertainties and your struggles? Well, if he is, then you will inevitably find yourself acting in faith like our three central characters in Ruth chapter 3. I've got one word this morning for, for each of them for you. And each of those words is a challenge to us to live by faith, trusting that the safest place in all the world for us to be is sheltering in God and in his promises.
So let's firstly look at Naomi. Naomi is responsive. To which you might say, oh, no, she's not. <laughs> I heard the Bible reading. She is an interfering old busybody. I mean, look at what it says about her at the start of this chapter, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that's Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. (laughs) Now, doesn't that make you cringe just a little bit? Can you imagine the conversation? Okay, Ruth. You know, we need to find a place of rest for you. We need, we need to find a home for you. What about Boaz? Have you, have you thought about Boaz? I mean, this is your mother-in-law, remember? And it gets worse. Come on, Ruth. Have a little wash. Put some perfume on. Come on, get yourself spruced up. <laughs> Come on, let's go, girl. Let's go manhunting. Let's get that guy. Now, I've puzzled um, well, all week about what Naomi is playing at here. I mean, it seems that Naomi is putting Ruth in a really awkward and, and somewhat risky position. I mean, it's been weeks now, and Boaz hasn't called in. He hasn't phoned. He hasn't even dropped her a text. So what does Naomi do? He gets her all tarted up to go off and do some flirty stuff and seduce the guy, trying to force God's hand in this issue. But I want to say that that's not actually what's going on here. She is not being a pushy mother-in-law. She is acting in absolute faith in what she says. And she's got two grounds by which she makes this suggestion to Ruth. And I think both of them are really wise. The first is that she has God's word. You see, God had made provision in his word for just this kind of situation. It's in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25, and it says that if a woman is widowed with no husband or no home, then the widow's husband's brother or close relative should marry the widow in order that her family and their honor should be looked after. So do you see, Naomi's grounds for encouraging Ruth to take this initiative is God's word. She is trusting in what he has said. But she's also got, and here's the second ground, she's got God's kindness. And she's already seen his kindness through this man, Boaz. It's not like she's going, oh, Ruth, I've seen this guy, Boaz. I mean, man, he is really hot. Don't know if he's interested, but hey, it's worth a shot. She does know he's interested. He's shown massive kindness to Ruth. And through her to Naomi, this isn't a punt in the dark. So Naomi isn't an impatient, manipulative old busybody. She is not trying to force God's hand, trying to take it into her own hands. No, she is responding. She's responding to what she has already heard God say in his word and what she can see him doing in her circumstances. There's this beautiful old hymn that I think puts really well what she's doing here. We're actually going to sing it in a, in a few minutes later on in our service. One of the verses goes like this. O oh joy, 
that seekest me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. (laughs) Folks, that is what Naomi is doing here. She suffered horrendously. And in her pain, she has cried and she's cried and she's cried. And yet, she's still looking for the rainbow of God's promise in the rain of her experience. And I want you to encourage you this morning to be someone who, like Naomi, traces the rainbow of God's promises. When bitter experiences come upon us, it is so easy for us to lose sight of the rainbow and only see the rain and, and just despair. But Romans 8 verse 28 says, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, even the hard things, God is doing good for us and in us. So in the midst of our struggle with debilitating illness or disability or a difficult and distressing family situation or the difficulty of being single and childless when all of our friends are getting married and, and having children in the midst of the bitterness and the tears and the pain and the frustration and the things aren't going like we would want to will you look for the good that God is doing in your situation? And trace the rainbow of his kindness as you look for the goodness of his promises at work. And as you do that, will you be responsive? Will you start to act on it in line with God's word and in line with God's kindness? Let those two things lead you. I think that's what Naomi is doing here. As she says to Ruth, go. And that brings us secondly to Ruth. And Ruth is bold. There is one word, other than bold actually, which is very, very striking here in Ruth chapter 3. It stands out like an absolute sore thumb. But look at your Bibles for as long as you want and you will not find it because it isn't actually there. The word is Moab. Chapter 1, she is introduced to us as the Moabite. She's from Moab. She is a foreigner. She is not one of God's people. Chapter 2, she is Ruth the Moabite. She's not even worthy to be a servant. But then in Ruth chapter 3, she is not described as a Moabite. Not anymore. Now you might be thinking, oh come on, who cares? Stop being such a Bible geek, Ken. But hold on to your horses here. If we get this, it is stunningly beautiful and mind-blowing. You see, what was going on in chapters 1 and 2 is her identity was, I'm a Moabite. That is who she was. That is how she defined herself, as not being part of God's people. But when you get to chapter 3, there's not a whiff of Moab anymore. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, verse 5, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk... Because it's the end of the barley harvest. So Boaz and his men were having a kind of end of harvest party. And his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet 
which is, I guess, bound to get your attention in the middle of the night when they get cold, and laid down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And as he gathers his wits about him, here comes the key question. I'm sure any of us would have answered it, asked it. He said, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. What did she say in chapter 2? Why would you notice me? I'm just a foreigner. Yet here, it's I am Ruth, your servant. Chapter 2, verse 13. I don't have the standing even of one of your servants. But here she is one chapter later. I am your servant. Do you see? Her whole status, her whole standing has been changed. Her whole approach to Boaz has changed. Why? Because she has come to take refuge under God's wings. She is not a Moabite anymore. She is now one of God's people. One of his chosen, loved, redeemed, beautiful people. She has a new identity. It was confirmed to her by Boaz in chapter 2 when he commended her for seeking to take refuge under the wings of the Lord God, the God of Israel. His words actually there were laced with subtle loving intentions so that he has in effect said to her because you take refuge under the wings of God you are the kind of woman I want to cover with my wings so now she comes to him and says I am Ruth your servant spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer been really struck by this picture of the boldness a new identity in Christ brings for us. I mean, clearly we need to approach God with humility, but that is not the only story. If we're a Christian, we also need to approach boldly, confident of our identity in Christ. Apparently on Twitter, you can define yourself in 20 words or less. Now, if you're as inept with social media as I am, you'd be unaware of this, but I'm grateful to my colleague, Ben Pryke, for keeping this old duffer up to speed on such things. But let me ask you, how would you define yourself in 20 words or less this morning? Folks, we carry so many labels about who we are and where our identity is. We define ourselves by our work or our achievements We define ourselves by our personalities, education or upbringing. We define ourselves by our identity, uh, sorry, by our gender or our sexuality. But all of those identities, they're shaky. They can go up and down. And so they leave us very vulnerable, leaves us uncovered. But as we come to Christ, as we come to find refuge under God's wings, we, can, we, are, we are changed. We have a new identity and a new security as we become children of the King. Listen to these verses from the New Testament. And as I read them, ask yourself, is this how I view being a Christian? Because this is what I think Ruth is doing here. Ephesians 3 verse 12 says, In Christ Jesus... Through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Folks, is that how you define yourself this morning? 
So often we actually define ourselves not, not merely by our circumstances, but we actually sometimes define ourselves by our sin. By the way we rebel against God and, and how we fail. And we end up just despairing and feeling trapped and, and going big on the unworthy idea. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. And folks, that's true. But it's not the whole truth. As in Christ, we find freedom from our sin so that we can be defined by him, our Savior. And that gives us great confidence to trust in and claim the promises of his word. That he is for us and that he is with us. And that in him we can do all things. And that if we go on trusting and walking with him, one day he will take us home to be with him in his perfect glory. This is the kind of confidence Ruth has as she comes to Boaz, boldly trusting the promises of God, which I'm sure Naomi must have taught her that as a close relative of the family, Boaz is in a position to redeem her and the family property. He's in a position to, re- to, to, to marry her now that she is one of the children of God. And that lastly brings us to Boaz. And Boaz, I think, is pure. I mean, come on. This guy wakes up in the middle of the night. And I don't know what you're like when you wake up in the middle of the night. But surely there must have been a little bit of kind of going, of, of, of what's, what's going on? My, oh, my feet are cold. Oh, what's, what's happening here? But once he comes to his senses, surely he must have seen that there was a wonderful opportunity for him here. There's this beautiful woman lying at his feet. She, she, she's... Not only beautiful, she's, she's got so many great attributes to her. She is, she's wonderful. Uh, and she's put herself in a risky and vulnerable position before him. And it must have been tempting to him to take advantage of Ruth. I mean, it would have been understandable, wouldn't it? If for a moment his desire for sexual pleasure got the better of him. Oh, I couldn't help myself, he, he might cry. I mean, I'm a red-blooded man, what else was I supposed to do? But sex outside marriage was not in God's plan for human flourishing and faithfulness in the Old Testament. And it still isn't today. It is wrong. Not because God is some kind of celestial killjoy who is out to stop the fun, but because it is harmful to us. Not least in the way our lack of obedience in this area says to God, I do not trust you with this. So Boaz says in verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. It's midnight. The stars are overhead. He desires her. She desires him. And yet he stops for doing things in the right way. In God's way. The way he's laid out. And he does not touch her. He says no to sin. 
And I hope you can see just how beautiful and commendable that is. In a world where sexual sin is completely out of control, let's face it, and when many of us are actually tempted every day to indulge in sexual sin of all sorts, I hope you can see the beauty and integrity and self-control of this man who in the heat of the moment, when no one would have known, and he could have done whatever he chooses to, he says, no. And he treats Ruth with total respect and purity. It's stunning. It's stunning. And so as I close, can I just say that if you find yourself in a situation when temptation seems almost too great to bear, it is possible to do the right thing. Self-control is possible. In fact, it is crucial for all who want to follow Christ and pursue purity. So say in that situation, because I love you, because I love God, because I know that he can be trusted. We're going to wait. I promise you that God will honor that. I promise you that God will honor that more, than, more vastly than you can imagine. So let me plead with you to stand with Boaz and Ruth in commitment to never pursue sexual relationships outside marriage. And if waiting means never having sexual relations in this life, then set your faith, let's set your face to be among the number who joined Jesus in that hall of fame. He never had sex, but he was the most fully human person who ever existed. And can I also say, if you failed in this area, well, can I say as tenderly as I possibly can that there is still hope? Failure is not fatal, but forgiveness is full and forever. There is forgiveness and cleansing in the offspring of Boaz and Ruth, which we're going to look at in a few weeks' time, in Jesus Christ. Remember, as we're going to remember in a few moments' time, uh, communion. If your identity is in Christ, if you come to him, if you put your trust in him, you can walk with head held high, confident that he has stretched out not his wings, but his arms to cover your guilt and your shame, to cover all of our guilt and shame, each one of us, in love on the cross. Folks, let's take a few moments to reflect and think and pray that through. Let's pray.